Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. So um, there's a there's a wide gap between uh, the perceptions of uh, of the British and the Americans toward each other. It's a mutual gap, a mutual lack of understanding, I think, and that's a prescription for trouble. That's Pulitzer Prize winning author Rick Atkinson talking about his new book, The British Are Coming: The War for America, Lexington to Princeton, and he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by West Home Publishing, publishers of To the End of the World, Nathaniel Green, Charles Cornwallis, and The Race to the Dan by Andrew Waters, available now wherever books are sold. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome back. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On today's episode, we have a very special guest, Pulitzer Prize winning author, Rick Atkinson. You may be familiar with him for his earlier works on World War II, but today we talk about his new American Revolution trilogy, starting with the first book, The British Are Coming. We're going to talk about a lot of familiar territory when it comes to the American Revolution, but one of the things that makes Rick's writing so great is his approach to the subject matter, his interpretation of familiar situations, and most importantly, his ability to bring situations and scenes to life with vivid detail. He's really one of the great writers of our time. We'll get into all of that today during our interview. I want to take this moment to remind all of the listeners to visit the Journal of the American Revolution website, subscribe to its mailing list, and if you have some research of your own, Submit it for potential publication. It's a wonderful resource you can use regularly. Check it every day during the week to get your daily dose of the newest cutting-edge scholarship in the American Revolution and its field of study. Without further ado, I'm proud to present Pulitzer Prize-winning author Rick Atkinson. Enjoy. Rick Atkinson, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Brady. I appreciate the uh, opportunity to talk with you. Tell us why you felt now was the right time for a new series on the American Revolution. Well, I start with the presumption that uh, great events, the greatest events, like the greatest uh, figures in history, are really bottomless, and that uh, you will never exhaust writing about Abraham Lincoln, for example. 500 years from now, people will be writing about World War II. And um, it seemed to me that the American Revolution falls into that category. There will never be definitive histories of it. I felt that um, trying to go back and look at first principles at this point in our uh, current history uh, was pretty important. And it seems to me I began this in 2013, and it's only gotten more important, trying to understand who we are, where we came from what our forebears believed, and uh, and what they were willing to die for. And all of those things, I think, can inform our current uh, politics and can inform our thinking about uh, precisely who we are and what we believe. 
your previous books worked on 20th century topics. Uh, what different sort of research challenges did this project present to you being in the 18th century? Yeah, it is quite different, although uh, I spent 15 years writing about World War II and specifically the American role in the liberation of Europe in World War II. And I do very few uh, oral histories simply because I just don't trust um, recollections that are of events 70 years ago. And the contemporaneous record for World War II is so vast and deep and broad that um, uh, you don't really need to count on a veteran's recollection of what happened at Omaha Beach on June 6, 1944. Having said that, the uh, the archives are, are completely different. The mastery that I felt that I'd had over those World War II archives did me very little good because the Revolutionary War archives are in different places. Um, obviously, the uh, 16.1 million Americans in uniform in World War II provide a much broader uh, array of materials um, than the much smaller Continental Army, for example. Um, the Americans are, are quite literate in the 1770s, uh, but it's just a smaller trove of stuff to work your way through. And, uh, and of course, you've got to learn the, the, uh, the art of reading 18th century cursive, not to mention the absence of punctuation and erratic spelling and all of that. Um, nevertheless, I think the, the skill set is fairly similar in trying to s suss out character, event, truth from fiction, uh, accurate recollection from fantasy, uh, all of those things that historians do in working through primary materials. And then finally, the secondary material is extraordinarily vast, both for World War II and for the American Revolution. For the latter, people have been writing about it for the better part of two and a half centuries. And so that's, that brings its own challenge. What did it mean to be an American before the Revolution began? Well, you know, the British had largely left the colonies alone for the better part of 150 years. And um, although uh, American colonists thought of themselves in 1775 as uh, British, um, they had a unique identity. It tended to be focused on their particular colonies. So I think if you were a British citizen living in Massachusetts, for example, uh, you probably thought of yourself as British, but you had a very strong identity of the colony and of your particular town, too. Um, I think that part of the issue is that the benign neglect that the British had uh, allowed for the better part of the development of the colonies had given them uh, full reign to have a sense of identity and, uh, and, and even more important, a sense that they were able to control their own fate. They had assemblies and local councils that they believed were every bit as uh, legitimate as parliament in terms of determining uh, how their lives would be organized collectively. 
And when the British began to rein that in in earnest in the mid-1760s with things like the Stamp Act, um, you know, I think that this challenged the identity as well as the the uh, the sense of uh, of autocracy uh, of uh, of the American colonists. There was a collision course here, and uh, it wasn't made any better by the fact that uh, I think the British didn't handle it particularly well. On the inverse, uh, how did Britons view America? You know, I think the average Briton didn't really think much about the Americans. Uh, they're 3,000 miles away. They have their own lives. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm struck repeatedly by the mm, uh, misconceptions that even the, the king, maybe particularly the king and his ministers have about the Americans. N- neither the king nor any of his ministers have ever been to America. Uh, and they really operate with several strategic misconceptions that uh, are, are shared by, I would say, most Britons, certainly a majority, solid majority in Parliament. And these include the presumption that um, uh, force will, will uh, including firearms, will, will uh, force the Americans back into their duty to the king and to Parliament. Um, they don't really know their their uh, American brethren if they believe that force is going to uh, work. Um, uh, they believe that the American colonies, if permitted to disengage from the empire, to break away, to succeed in uh, declaring independence, that that will be the beginning of the end of the British Empire, which is a new creation come about in 1763 with the great British victory in the Seven Years' War, the French and Indian War, as we call it. And they believe that if the Americans go, then the Irish will go, and the Canadians and the Sugar Islands and the West Indies and India, and that uh, the British Empire will crumble. And nobody really has the wit to conceive uh, or, or put into action something that uh, would require decades to go by before anybody could uh, put that into action. That's a commonwealth where there's a kind of common allegiance to a common heritage, and yet there's independence for the uh, disparate states. So um, there's, a, there's a wide gap between uh, the perceptions of, uh, of the British and the Americans toward each other. It's a mutual gap, a mutual lack of understanding, I think, and that's a prescription for trouble. How did European thinkers and commentators affect American politics? I think that they're 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 marinated in enlightenment thinking. Uh, you know, even if you haven't read Voltaire, you've got some sense of uh, of the, the the thinkings and writings of uh, of enlightenment uh, uh, figures in Europe. Uh, a belief in the uh, primacy of man and a belief that um, that. Uh, you know, self-determination is uh, uh, part and parcel of the, the gifts that God has given us. Uh, uh, I think that, you know, even though there are strong religious uh, beliefs operating in America, there's also a, a, a strong undercurrent of humanism. And um, that informs the political thinking of 
not not just the Thomas Jeffersons of the age, but I I think it it actually uh, infects the uh, the average American a belief that um, you know we hold these truths to be self evident that all men are created equal. That's aspirational. It's not literally true at the time. Obviously, when you've got one in five of all uh, human beings living in the colonies uh, uh, held in in uh, enslavement, but it is aspirational. I believe that it is broadly uh, shared as an aspiration by Americans, and that comes right out of Enlightenment thinking. What kind of factors made Massachusetts such a major hotbed of revolution in the 1770s? Yeah, I know Gen- uh, General Gage wondered the same thing, and so did uh, uh, George the Third. Well, what was the problem in Massachusetts? Uh, you know, part of the issue was obviously you had some um, uh, firebrand thinkers and actors there, the Samuel Adamses and the John Hancocks, John Adams. Uh, you had a, a, a strong undercurrent of radicalism that was nurtured in uh in boston and and uh, the environs of boston um i think the fact that you ended up with an occupational force there really uh ignited the tinderbox uh when the british moved several regiments to boston regiments that had initially been intended as a uh, a buffer force between the Americans and uh, the Indians, Americans meaning white Americans and Native Americans, uh, and that buffer force um, ends up being an occupation force. That's a big problem, I think. And um, uh, that not only affects the thinking in Boston and Massachusetts, but the other colonies certainly take note. Boston and the radicals in Boston are pretty effective in using it as a propaganda tool and telling um, uh, colonists in South Carolina and Virginia, look what's happening to us. This could happen to you. That's a pretty strong argument, as it turns out. So you have this combination of, of events over the course of a decade, really, uh, that uh, that inflame uh, Massachusetts and make it the uh, you know the tinderbox that will set things off. This book really focuses on characters and bring them to life. Uh, who did you find yourself personally gravitating toward during your writing process? Oh, gosh, it's a long list. Uh, thank goodness, because uh, if you're going to embark on something like this, you want to uh, travel in good company. Uh, you know, on the British side, I'm really fascinated by a number of them. George III, I've spent an enormous amount of time with, including uh, with his papers uh, in the top of the round tower at uh, Windsor Castle. I was there for a month and really uh, feel going through his papers since he was his own secretary and wrote most everything himself in the 1770s that I had a tactile sense of being in his presence. Uh, and I find him uh, much more uh, complex and intriguing than the stereotype that most Americans have, the stereotype of the mincing nitwit 
uh, in the, across the stage in Hamilton every night. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think uh, General Clinton, who's going to be the commander-in-chief for the British forces for four years, he serves longer in uh, America than any other British general. He's a very intriguing character. I don't necessarily personally like these guys. Um, I find them uh, difficult and overbearing at times, but I do find them complex and intriguing, uh, worthy adversaries. And then on the American side, well, you start with Washington because he's the long pole in the tent. Uh, Benedict Arnold will fascinate people, I think, uh, till the end of time. Uh, and uh, I'm sympathetic to him. I uh, also admire him very much because he's a man born to lead other men in the dark of night. He's perhaps the finest battle commander on either side in the first couple of years of the war. Uh, Nathaniel Green, obscure Quaker anchor smith from Rhode Island, turns out to be one of the finest uh, commanders in the history of the American army. Um, so it's a grand uh, procession of really extraordinary and captivating personalities. The Minuteman has become something of a legendary figure in our national consciousness. How do you make him real for this book? Well, uh, you know, first of all, by not making them bigger than they are, the Minuteman concept was important and uh, and pretty effective uh, in April 1775. Um, uh, you know, I think that what we see subsequently is that you can only go so far with a force composed of Minutemen and militia. Um, Washington is skeptical of them from the day he arrives at uh, in Cambridge in July 1775 to take command of the new Continental Army. Uh, the Minutemen serve their purpose when the war begins in rallying to the cause, in defending uh, their homes and their farms and their shops. Um, uh, they're, uh, you know, I wouldn't say they're well-trained, but they have been drilling more intently as we get closer to the events of April 19th, 1775 at Lexington and Concord. Um, and they're, they're brave. There's no doubt about that. And many of them uh, are, are uh, really courageous in uh, posing this, a fairly ferocious British force that um, they're going to be fighting. Um, but it'll only take you so far. There's a lack of discipline in the militia generally. Um, uh, coming by gunpowder is, a, is a, you know, going to be a months and years long uh, challenge for them. Um, their, their firepower is minimal compared to the British. Uh, so, you know, I think showing them as they are and who they are, uh, you know, allows us to feel uh, some sympathy and some understanding of them over time. Uh, but then the war is going to move on, and the Minutemen are going to be uh, pretty uh, marginalized characters pretty quickly. In history, we talk a lot about moments. Uh, what sort of moment was the battle at Lexington? It was a battle, yes, but it also represented a lot more. Well, it was a massacre, first of all. It's not really a battle, in my estimation. It's, it's an execution. Um, again, you have brave men, uh, confused, um, uncertain. Uh, they are mustered onto the green uh, 
uh, in that early morning of April 19th, and they're waiting for the British. The British don't show up. They're dismissed. Uh, most of them don't reassemble when the call goes out that the British, in fact, are indeed coming. They're approaching Lexington. And um, they've begun to disperse under uh, orders, um, first from the British and then echoed by their own commander. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, we, we end up with eight dead and ten wounded uh, by a force that has been overwhelmed by... Uh, very undisciplined uh, British soldiers. Uh, most of those who were killed are shot in the back. Um, so it, it's it's horrifying. Uh, there's no, there's no um, uh, way around it. It's it's a it's a bloodbath, uh, and of course it's going to inflame the rest of the colony as that British column uh, reassembles and moves on toward Concord. What the Lexington force has done is to buy time. They've traded space for time. And uh, by the time the British column gets to Concord, the, the militia forces there are going to be ready for them. So when I go to Lexington, I, 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 you know, it's still 240-some years later, you have to feel that these were uh, men who sacrificed themselves for the cause. It was the first real sacrifice when the war began. And, uh, and you know, I think we still should feel gratitude and, uh, and, and awe for what they did. This may be a question too big for one show, but uh, talk about the importance of George Washington's commission as general of the Continental Army. How important was that? Well, you know, he's such a fascinating character, and uh, you're right, we could talk about him for a long time. I think the fact that he uh, shows up in Cambridge uh, in early July 1775, uh, having some military experience, but it's pretty minimal. He's been a colonel in the Virginia militia for five years, but he's been out of uniform for more than 16 years uh, at that point, and there's a lot that he either has forgotten or doesn't know. He doesn't know much about uh, cavalry, doesn't know much about artillery. He knows nothing about uh, operating a continental force. Um, he, he's got natural leadership capabilities. That's evident right from the get-go. He's got great command presence. Um, he's very smart. I think that that's underestimated sometimes. He's also got great powers of articulation and expression. You read his orders and you, um, you, you understand the orders that he gives orally to his men. You realize there's great clarity uh, typically in the orders that he gives, even if sometimes the orders are not uh, the right orders. Um, I spent 15 years with Dwight Eisenhower when I was writing about World War II and the Two of them remind me of each other quite a lot. Their backgrounds are completely different. Uh, Washington is obviously to the manor born and uh, marries the richest widow in Virginia and uh, all of that. Eisenhower's from much more modest circumstances. Um, but their characters remind me of each other. They're resonant in that regard. And their leadership abilities and their their capability in rallying men to the cause. People trust them, uh, which is pretty critical. Um, and another thing that um, is also uh, that they have in common is luck. 
That's the trait that Napoleon most cherished in his generals, and uh, and Washington, like Eisenhower, tends to be lucky. So um, he's got a lot to learn from uh, the summer of 1775. He doesn't really appreciate what these men from New England have sacrificed to be at his side in rallying to the cause. He's got 300 slaves back in Mount Vernon taking care of business for him. It's very hard for him to appreciate uh, these men who have left their homes, their families, their farms, their shops. Uh, He talks about dirty New Englanders. He's very disparaging of the junior officers. Um, there is a mystical bond between leaders and lead that he's going to have to work on uh, because uh, for eight years, as it turns out, uh, this is going to be the indispensable institution, the United States Army, and he's going to be the indispensable man for the two of them to be pulling together in harness in the same direction is going to take some work. So um, I find it just one of the most fascinating uh, pairings in the history of our country, Washington and his army. What did Bunker Hill mean to the Patriot cause? Well, it showed them that the British were not invincible. Bunker Hill was a terrible bloodbath, of course. He had more than uh, 200 British killed. Uh, He had 1,000 killed or wounded, 1,000 British casualties. Uh, I've seen the statistic that of all the British officers killed in eight years of war, uh, one in eight died uh, in in four hours at Bunker Hill. Um, So the thing that strikes me most in studying uh, Bunker Hill and writing about it in great detail is the intensity of the fight. It's one of the uh, bloodiest, most intense battles of the whole war. Uh, Of course, it comes early in in the war, June 17, 1775. Um, You know, the rebels end up uh, surrendering about a square mile of territory at great cost to the British. And um, initially, because they have surrendered ground and they have ceded the ground to the British, it's thought of as a defeat that they've been pushed off this ground. And it's going to take a little while for them to recognize that for the, for the British, actually, it is, a, it is a major and significant defeat. For, for uh, General Gage, General Howe, who actually leads the assault, um, they realize that this is not just a ragtag bunch of ruffians uh, who happen to have firelocks, that uh, they'll stand and fight in, you know, under the right circumstances, um, that they will fight hand-to-hand, uh, that they will die for the cause they believe in, and that they will kill. And uh, uh, this is, a, I think, pretty shocking to a lot of British soldiers, uh, the, the bloodletting that occurs there in the days immediately after the battle, the agony of those who've been severely wounded, um, really shows the British, as it does the Americans, that they are in something now that's probably not going to be fixed short of force of arms, that we're going to fight this out to the end, whatever the end may be. Uh, So I think Bunker Hill is a pretty significant date in not only the history of the war, but the history of our country. 
After the battle, we famously see the Olive Branch petition uh, sent overseas by the Continental Congress. Did it ever truly have a chance of solving this crisis? That the uh, that there was a way, a modus vivendi, to be had that the the two sides would find a reconciliation. I think probably not. Um, you know, I've meant as I've mentioned, I've spent a lot of time trying to understand the British point of view and um, going through innumerable uh, documents and papers and memoirs and so on from the British side. And I just don't think that the, the king, his cabinet, the parliament, and the British people generally are uh, ready for the kind of uh, reconciliation that has been proposed. Uh, the two sides are far apart. Uh, independence uh, is going to make that gulf uh, probably completely unbridgeable, the Declaration of Independence. And um, again, I just think that one of the issues is that the uh, British powers that be don't have a very visceral understanding of what it is that the Americans want, what it is that the Americans think is their due, and what it is that the Americans will settle for, for there to be a reconciliation. The British are absolutely determined that the primacy of Parliament in particular is going to be acknowledged, it's going to be observed, uh, because they believe that this is uh, critical to the preservation and the thriving of the empire. And um, so what you have here, two people, again, talking past each other. Uh, so I don't think that uh, it's very realistic that uh, this is going to be solved. And, of course, once you begin killing, then you've got other layers of issues. The guy on my left has been killed. The guy on my right has been badly wounded. What do I want? I want vengeance. I want to, I want to make somebody pay. And that's operating on both sides. How did George Washington's army compare to General Howe's in 1776? Uh, badly, I would say. Uh, Washington has an army that um, is poorly trained, poorly armed, uh, poorly fed, poorly led. Uh, he's had some success in Boston without actually fighting a battle. Uh, they're probably overconfident in some ways. Washington himself is kind of learning by doing. When they get to New York in 1776, Washington sees immediately that the archipelago of New York is impossible to defend if you have not got uh, uh, control of the waterways, which, of course, the Royal Navy controls completely. Um, and, um, uh, you know, it's going to take a drubbing, particularly at Long Island, for uh, Washington and his army to see that, well, you know, slugging it out when, we've, when we're entrenched on Bunker Hill is one thing. Uh, slugging it out in a place like Long Island, where the British make a very deft amphibious landing and then an even defter uh, uh, flanking maneuver around the American left flank uh, to get behind the American lines. Uh, we're fighting a pretty good army here, and our forces, uh, you know, it's it's just not up to snuff yet. So uh, 
they're lucky the war didn't end there. It was a providential escape across the East River in the fog that uh, prevented the American army from being completely annihilated. Uh, again, Washington's luck holding true, and I have to say Washington's good instincts after a number of bad instincts during that battle, his instinct that, okay, now's the time to get away. It's it's time for us to to, to slip across the river if we can. So, um, you know, I've, and that begins a long, uh, clattering uh, chain of uh, defeats where, yeah, they have a little success at Harlem Heights, but they end up... Uh, uh, repairing into West Westchester County and White Plains is uh, is a bit of a draw, but you lose three thousand men at Fort Washington and you retreat across New Jersey. It's <laughs> it's uh, it doesn't look good for the home team, and of course the army is shrinking by the day. Uh, desertions and uh, the expiration of of um, enlistments uh, really whittle down the army. Washington's down to fewer than three thousand men as he's retreating across New Jersey. So, um, you know, I think if a dramatist uh, tried to invent this, people would say, oh, come on, this this is very unlikely. Well, it, it may have been unlikely, but it, it was true. And so at that point, that, that nadir, uh, we're going to, we're going to need everything that uh, Providence can provide us in order to keep this rebellion going. What do you believe was Howe's biggest failure at Long Island? Yeah, well, Howe got beat up pretty good afterwards for not pressing the, his advantages, and the Americans had retreated into their defensive uh, uh, encampment at, at Brooklyn, uh, and Howe you know, began a formal siege. Um, I'm more sympathetic to Howe's thinking, uh, and he would explain it to Parliament several years later, and he was quite defensive about it, uh, because, again, Howe is there at Bunker Hill. He knows what assaulting entrenched rebels can do to your army. Um, he also knows that when you're an expeditionary force, as the British were then, that uh, every man is precious, that uh, the British are having trouble uh, re- recruiting, they're having trouble uh, getting together enough force to uh, put down this insurrection. Uh, they've hired eventually 30,000 Germans because they don't have enough British troops to do it. And so he's, a, he's reluctant to uh, go full force and to make a frontal assault on uh, the American positions, which incidentally have heavier guns than he's uh, been able to bring across from Staten Island. Um, Having said that, having pardoned him, if you will, tactically, uh, we see how uh, he's got moments of of real competence as a commander, as a tactical commander. There's no question that he's personally brave. Uh, I think there's also no question that he does want to to put down the rebellion. Some people have said, well, he's really sympathetic to the Americans. I don't think that that's true, not to the point where he's willing to lose the war. Um, and yet there's a certain indolence about him, and we will see it subsequently, too. He moves very slowly in Westchester County. Um, he, he misses opportunities to really uh, cinch the sack. Uh, and, uh, and he's not 
paying as much attention as he probably should be. He, you know, the American force under Washington get a, get across the East River in the fog, and the Brits are clueless about it until the next morning when uh, probes indicate that the encampment has been evacuated, and lo and behold, there's the last of the boats crossing the river. So Howe's got advantages. He's got you know, a lot of issues he's got to be attentive to. Um, he's he's not Napoleon. There's no doubt about that. And that uh, works in the Americans' favor. We talk about the importance of the Declaration of Independence today in the 21st century. What do you think some of our biggest misconceptions about the document were? Well, Brady, I'd like the average American to read it. Uh, I think that that would be a good start, or at least, you know, the the first part of it. I think, uh, you know, having a good understanding of what it is that um, we have declared and what we, uh, what these truths are that we uh, hold to be self-evident, unalienable rights, as Jefferson uh, and his colleagues put it. Um, You know, again, I think the... The idea that it's aspirational, that um, it uh, paints a portrait of a, of a country that's just coming into being, has a lot of grievances, most of the document. And, of course, it was whittled down by a third by Congress acting as editors and doing a pretty good job as editors. They have, uh, they've lopped out a lot of extra verbiage and uh, kvetching by Jefferson to make it leaner. Uh, but still, a good part of the uh, document is a list of grievances against the king and against Britain, um, which, you know, seem a little tedious after a while. It was read aloud to Washington's troops in New York and up and down the eastern seaboard, and um, it's easy to imagine soldiers yawning when you get to grievance number 19 or whatever. Nevertheless, the the language at the top, the the soaring, majestic um, uh, vision that's painted uh, by Jefferson, by the Continental Congress, uh, is who we are. Uh, And it should remind us, I think, that uh, we are the uh, beneficiaries of an invaluable uh, treasured political heritage and that uh, we should not allow that to slip away. We should not allow anyone to take it away. We should recognize uh, it for what it is, which is one of the great documents in the history of mankind, one of the um, most uh, beautiful expressions of, of, of freedom and, uh, and hope. And um, uh, it should be near and dear to every one of us. You choose to end this book, the, the first of three, at the Battle of Princeton. Uh, what does the war look like for the average reader at this point? Because the outlook doesn't look great. No, but it's a lot better than it had been, uh, you know, 10 days earlier. Um, yeah, I, I end volume one with the uh, two battles at Trenton and then the battle at Princeton, partly because um, it redeems the American cause when things seem very dark, uh, when that American army had shrunk to... Um, to uh, just a few thousand troops when uh, Washington himself says the game is nearly up. 
when you know you're in the depths of winter and men are suffering lack of food lack of clothing lack of shoes lack of proper weapons um and uh, and then this bold act of desperation crossing the delaware on christmas night attacking the hessian garrison uh, then recrossing the Delaware, doubling down, which is one of the most extraordinary things Washington does as a commanding general, and and gulling the British into attacking him in entrenched positions at Trenton on Assunpink Creek. Uh, and then uh, he's kind of making it up at this point, but uh, slipping away from the British and uh, heading to uh, uh to uh, Princeton uh, and attacking the rear guard there. Uh, it's a pretty good sequence for Washington and the Americans. And then, of course, they go into winter quarters, so not a lot happens for the next several months. It's skirmishing and whatnot, but they're, the Americans are going to be in North Jersey in, in good terrain where they're safe. And uh, it's a good place to for me to end volume one before we pick up the story again in 1777. And it's a it's an opportunity to see what has happened. And it's almost two years at that point since the war has begun. And we see that the uh, American cause, which it seemed, you know, on the knife's edge, of uh, dissolution, um, there are glimmers of hope, and there are glimmers of hope in both the Continental Army's capabilities and in the men who are leading it. We see that Washington, in fact, has got probably uh, greater capacities than perhaps we've given him credit for to this point. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, it's if you if you're rooting for the home team, um, it's a a great few days. Like we said, this was only book one of the series. We can't wait to read the rest. Rick Atkinson, thank you for joining us. Well, Brady, thank you very much. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.